Welcome to Nero Knowledge. Dr. Laura Huey is the director of the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing and professor of sociology at the University of Western Ontario. She's also a member of the College of New Scholars, Artists and Scientists of the Royal Society of Canada, a senior research fellow of the Police Foundation and a research fellow for the London Police Service. She also formerly sat on the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police Crime Prevention Committee and was formerly a member of the Board of Serene Risk, which is a Canadian Center of Excellence on Cybercrime. Now recording Nero Knowledge, an episode with Dr. Laura Huey. Um, and before we jumped on, we, we uh, started talking about the uh, IACA conference, or for those of you who don't like that term, IACA conference. Um, <laughs> that happened in Maryland um, this past August, um, in which... Laura uh, spoke to the group and clan as one of the keynote speakers. And so why don't we go back to, to kind of what we were talking about so we can get into it. But basically, we were discussing the, uh, the role of a crime analyst for evidence-based policing and how it seems very natural for some people that that role for the analyst to, to kind of keep going um, and push the evidence-based policing and, and kind of what would you say, go forward and, and make it better than um, what it used to be, kind of a, a, a traditional mindset of what it worked before. So now having the analyst can be, it didn't really work before, you just believed it did. Yeah. Kind of go on from there. So I'll let you, I guess, kind of take it away from that, that aspect. Oh. All righty. <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, having been a criminologist for the better part of almost 20 years now, and most, I mean, all, almost all that's been in policing. Mm -hmm. My experience in relation to crime analysts and their roles within uh, police organizations is typically completely undervalued, completely underutilized. I mean, these are people that, I mean, you know this, these are people with immense skills and knowledge. Most of the ones that I work with in Canada have a minimum of a master's degree with graduate training and research methodology, understanding all sorts of um, uh, criminology theories and so on. And what do we do? We get them to crank out stupid stats on how many people went to the cafeteria this weekend or what, right. some, you know, um, and I mean, that's obviously a bit of an exaggeration, but I've literally seen crime analysts being used to generate stats on programs that the stats, the, the, the stats produced don't actually match the objective of the program, but they're told, well, just give me something. Right. That's, that's ridiculous. I mean, we've got, like I said, highly educated, highly motivated people and organizations are not using them to their fullest capacity. And so... A lot of times, and what we were talking about before is you had said to me, well, what about crime analysts that come out now? And some of them say, well, we don't want to do research. That's not really part of our gig, mm -hmm. which floored the hell out of me because you've got, like I said, educated, intelligent, analytical people with skills and knowledge. Why wouldn't you want to employ them? taking their ideas to the next level and actually testing them out to see whether or not there's better ways that we could be doing 
uh, crime prevention, crime response, tactical decision making, and so on. Right. So do you, I just didn't get it. Yeah. Do you see though that, um, and, and obviously there's some similarities between Canada and the states, and I'm sure even abroad with the usage of analysts, where it is always kind of pumping out those numbers. And I'm not a fan of numbers because there's no context to it in order to, to start moving that forward. So what does a reduction in your arrests for the year actually mean? Right? Mm-hmm. Does it mean you were understaffed? Does it mean that um, your prevention um, uh, strategies that you have implemented were successful? Did, I mean, there's no, there's no grasp on the up and down of the numbers meaning anything statistically. So using an analyst to kind of push that forward, do you, I guess my first question is, do you see that across the board there seems to be that use of the analyst is just a numbers cruncher and that's what it is? Or do you see that there's different countries that are actually utilizing them in a, to the degree that you're speaking of, of, of trying to push that evidence-based policing? It's starting to change. Thank God, it's starting to change. That's good. And so evidence-based policing started pretty much in the late, well, let's say realistically about the past 10, 11 years in the UK, five years in Canada, five years in the US. And it, and part of that, our job has been actually educating police leaders to use their crime analysts more wisely. Right. When I say use, I mean employ, not in the you know, the typical kind of sense of just do what I tell you and give me my numbers, right? Right. Yeah. Um, part of the thing with, with this is that we've, we've also cr- tried to create a space in which we've said, empower your analysts and analysts speak up and get involved. So one of the things is not everybody's organization uh, creates space to allow their analysts to do more complex work. Mm-hmm. So quietly, we've been subverting the process by saying to Alice, why don't you pair up with academics and work on other projects? And that's actually kicked off some really interesting collaborations. And I hate to say it, but human behavior, no matter how complex we think we are, always goes back to schoolyard, right? (laughs) So monkey see, monkey do. Exactly, yeah. And so when you see somebody in an organization that's being highly successful and you point to them, you know, the, the police leaders at the other organization are like, well, that monkey's doing it. We better jump on it. Right. And that's where we start to see the crime analysts really sh- beginning to help shift the culture within police organizations. And I've got tons of great examples of innovative work that that crime analysts in Canada have done, because of course that's what I know best, mm-hmm. um, that have actually generated shifts within not just their organization but other organizations as well. So, do you see more success then from uh, an, an analyst trying to emanate that through the agency and organization and community itself, or is it uh, probably a better practice to try and get those? sometimes dinosaurs from the upper crust to, you know, just tell people that that's what needs to be done and change that um, culture within the agency. Well, you know, it's funny. I'm going to tell you a story um, uh, that I think has been illustrative of the role of crime mouse and how they're viewed within police organizations. So about, I don't know, six or seven years ago, I went to this big uh, meeting to to decide a multi-million dollar grant. There was a there was a inspector, so what you guys would call like a lieutenant, uh, there was, or maybe a captain. 
Um, so there was this inspector at this meeting with a couple of crime analysts, and um, it was clear the inspector had no clue what was going on. And so later I was chit-chatting with the crime analyst, and I said, and I cracked a joke about, you know, thank God you guys are here because nobody else is going to know what the hell is going on. <laughs> and I also then cracked another joke about, you know, how they're the smart ones and they typically get treated crappy within within their own organizations. Yeah. And it was funny. I didn't realize the inspector had walked up. <laughs> and the inspector looked at me and jumped into the conversation, shut down the crime house and said, well, that doesn't happen within our organization. Well, all you had to do is look at the faces of the crime house who were standing there like, I'm like, I'm not saying a damn word. Right. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I smiled and did that fake uh, a fake kind of like fear grin that you do when you're when it's really awkward. And right. then I walked away. Right. Yeah. Um, where I'm going with this is that that's the kind of mentality that we often see, which is the police leaders and decision makers will tell you, oh, yes, we listen to the crime house. But when you actually talk to the crime house, they'll tell you something completely different. Mm -hmm. And so do we. It's the chicken and egg. Do we work with the senior leaders and get them to try to um, engage in a culture shift within their organization? Yes. But we also need the egg side of it, which is the crime analyst also pushing from within in the spaces in which they can. And like I said, I recognize that these are very hierarchical and in some organizations, paramilitary style uh, institutions. Yeah. That's difficult. Yeah. But, you know, there are little ways of doing it. And so one of the things, we, like I said, we've done is we've paired crime analysts up on their own time. And it sucks that they're not being always paid for this, but on their own time with uh, academics doing research on topics that are of interest. So they can come back and say, well, just so you know, off the corner of my desk, this is what I was doing. Oh, right. there it goes. There, there we go. There's Chewy's defense <laughs> in the background. Must have finished. <laughs> yeah, he must have finished. Come on, Chewy. Um, so I, I think I think it's it. Yes, it's great to have police leaders that are trying to shift things, but ultimately the shift has to come from within, and and that means crime analysts have to start believing in an alternate vision in which they they have much more to contribute and start to do that mm. than they currently are. Well, I've, I've tried to equate in because similar to what you're saying, I've tried to equate the analyst uh, to like a business intelligence analyst. Anybody um, within any company, corporate organization, have people going through not just the statistics, but they're going through uh, as some analysts are in um, some crime analysts are. They're going through social media. They're they're consuming so much data to find out what's the trend, what's the pattern, what is the series of conversations being had, how do they inject themselves into that audience to see greater success in their sales. It's like, well, that's pretty well the same thing that, that uh, I feel crime analysts need to be doing in terms of we need to have our fingers on the pulse and it doesn't just come from the numbers. The numbers give us something to, to work off of but now we need to figure out what is working, what isn't working, and it almost parallels um, the corporate level because you're getting um, them realizing, well, nope, this ad campaign didn't work, so let's try something else. They're restructuring, they're strategizing, 
just like a crime analyst would be in terms of, well, here's the numbers, here's what we're seeing from social media, here's, you know, this three-month time period that we were tracking this and our, our strategy didn't work, so let's change it again. What's the, the evidence, what's the proof that we have that one thing worked over something else at that point? Um, and I don't know if it's been a success with some people, but some of the older uh, um, people within law enforcement or corrections start realizing that, oh, yeah, you can kind of shape and see how something is going to be working based on what an analyst can pull as long as somebody's giving um, data. So, you know, I, I don't know if it's a great analogy, but it's a lot of tools of the, that we work off of are the same. Um, but that's uh, how I try and pitch it to people who aren't familiar with what a crime analyst is, because I still see that there's a lot of people that when you say, oh, I'm, I'm a crime analyst, they're like, oh, cool. Uh, so, you, you know, they think CSI. And yeah. You're going out, right? So you're going out to crime scenes and it's like, no, no, that's, that's nowhere near it. But, okay. Love me some dead bodies, right? Yeah, exactly. The same thing for criminologists. It's like, oh, mm -hmm. you know, tell me about all the dead people. I'm like, none. No, right, right. That's not what we deal with, but thank you. <laughs> but you know, what's funny is what I'm actually pushing for within um, evidence-based policing is something even beyond just simple um, or any simple or even complex analysis. Right. I actually want to see crime analysis involved in experimentation mm -hmm. uh, because I think, you know, again, it's the same skill sets, the same knowledge. I'll give you a great example. One of the projects that we're trying to get going with one of the services in Canada started because I had a meeting uh, with a crime analyst who was like, you know, you know, I've got a PhD. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I, and I also know exactly where this conversation's going, right? <laughs> um, and so we started talking about it and I said, you know, I've got this problem and I think, I think we should get together on it. And the problem is we run these crime prevention programs. I'll give you an example, lock it or lose it. I don't know if you have that one in, in the States. I think there's been some agencies that have done something similar, basically um, leaving some kind of note of leaving your, your car locked up because they found it unlocked. Is that what it is, right? Yeah, which okay. is a really great way to sort of signal for me the potential thief that I should hit this one, by the way. Right. Uh, so, but here's the thing. We don't actually know that that has, we've been doing this for like 20 years at least. We have zero knowledge as to whether or not that's actually effective in any kind of way, shape or form. Yeah. So I was talking with this crime analyst and I said, you know, it'd be fantastic. You guys have a bunch of auxiliary constables. Um, why don't you run an experiment? We could do a random, some sort of a, well, it wouldn't be a perfect randomized control trial. Maybe we'll just do a control trial. We'll match a couple locations. You'll pull up the best locations and match them because you know the data, right? Mm -hmm. And um, let's run an experiment. And uh, when I say we, I mean you. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just be. I'll just be the, you know, you know, the one that holds your hand behind the scenes right. or we can hook you up with a BetaGov is a great example of, of an organization that provides those services. Right. Okay. And so basically we're we we've had to try and work to clear his plate off a little bit so we could get the project going. But once I talked to him, here's this is terrible. But, you know, the hierarchical thing, mm -hmm. I'm not really good with that. Just like you, I am not as well. <laughs> Big shock, right? And most crime analysts aren't. I always, I always use the analogy of cats and dogs. Uh, crime analysts tend to be the cats in the dog pound, right? right. 
So, so the hierarchy thing doesn't go so well for us. So what I did is I said, okay, you want to do this? It's like, yep. I said, I'm going to make a phone call. And that's what I did. I called the deputy chief, said, pitch the idea. He said, absolutely. And so now the deputy chief has bought in. And instead of the crime house having to go out on a limb, sometimes what we can do is find, like, again, subversively, find these backdoor ways to get leadership to support what it is that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And so they're actually really excited about this project, which I think we're probably going to do in the spring, early summer next year. Nice. And this guy is running the experiment. <laughs> that means you can now hold more hands to get more experiments done. Absolutely. Uh. <laughs> and that's the thing. If you think about all the different things that we don't actually know a damn thing about, although we think we do. Yes. All the myths of crime and crime prevention. Mm-hmm. Well, think, can you imagine if we had an army of crime analysts out there doing experiments, doing complex analytics, doing testing of different programs and, and, and dare I say it, evaluation of practices? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. It would be amazing. Yes. Well, and then you would need, I mean, I know there's different um, needs for, for different size communities. So obviously a larger agency probably would be easier to deal with evidence-based wise with all the data. So to kind of root to what I'm looking uh, or heading towards, what would you feel, who are the analysts that would benefit from evidence-based policing? Like who should be getting involved? Cause it's not just a crime analyst that we always have. Sometimes some of these larger agencies just have, People who are on intelligence, uh, strategic analysis, tactical analysis, some of them are, are just even more hyper-focused than just a, a, a general crime analyst in a sense. So, so the short answer is everybody. Okay. And everybody, and guess what? We're actually working on a book right now. It's in review. And it looks at, first of all, organizational size. Mm-hmm. And one of the arguments that we actually make is that um, small is beautiful. It's probably easier to work with, I would suppose, to get more people on board. Is that kind of what you're... Absolutely. It is a thousand times easier to get. Yes, there are resource issues, but one of the smallest police organizations I work with here in Canada is about 75 sworn members, which I realize is not super small, because I know in the U.S. y'all have fewer. (laughs) Yep. Like the Podunk Police Department with two people, right? Yeah, three, three yeah. to ten, right? Yeah, yep. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but that police organization is running randomized control trials, but there's in, and that's like I said, seventy-five sworn officers and one crime analyst. So small, it can be done. Right. Um, so that's one point. The second point is like who, in terms of different types of analysts, all of them. I'll give you a great example. You said intelligence analysts. Well, one of the big unknowns uh, is whether or not, you guys call it SQF, so stop, question, frisk, or something like that? Yeah, some agencies still use it. Okay, so up in Canada, we call it street checks. We don't actually frisk anybody. We just stop and ask you questions and then write down the answers. Well, one of the big claims over the past 20, 30 years that people have been engaged in this practice and it's been, quote-unquote, controversial Police officers say that it helps them in terms of intelligence gathering and solving cases. Mm-hmm. Can you find one damn published, peer-reviewed uh, study that supports that? 
No, but oddly enough that you bring that up, I did read something, um, and I wish I could track it down now that you bring it up too, is um, a study basically saying that that kind of stop and frisk practice, if it is uh, the initial contact with an officer and it is somebody, uh, usually a juvenile male, Mm-hmm. It usually gives them a more negative outlook on police in general. Yeah. So I'm I don't not... know if that was fully researched or if that was somebody's you know quick survey thereof um, in some form like New York Times or something like that. But uh, so similar there, it, just that one topic alone doesn't have anything to say one way or the other, officer versus victim in a sense or possible offender that they're shaking down. No. And so I'm not positive, but that might be a study by Michael White and some other dude whose name I completely forget. Um, they've got a book out on this. So it, I think it comes from that, that study nice. in New York. Uh, but we, I was actually asked to take a look at uh, street checks and what, what the research literature had said about effectiveness. And I couldn't find anything. Mm especially on this claim about it has intelligence gathering or purposes, right? Yeah. Couldn't an intelligence analyst run a study on that? Yeah. If this is an important policing practice that needs to be, you know, enshrined or supported or yada, yada, then why not actually have intelligence analysts doing the research on to support your claim? Right. Of course, I have a sneaking suspicion that, and this gets into the questions you're going to ask me about data quality. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have a sneaking suspicion that we're going to have some problems with data quality, just saying. Right. But, um, again, not just your traditional maps in pins and maps kind of approach. There's yeah. m- many different ways in which analysts across the board can and should get involved. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely holds... Uh... A lot more uh, qualitative value in a sense than it does quantitative. It seems, especially in the intelligence world. Mm-hmm. Um, like, how do you how do you how many bits of intelligence do you get from it that is ends up even being worthwhile, right? So versus what you're affecting as the community as a whole. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's lots of spaces as you said that we can probably start doing a lot of research <laughs> and please please do here's the thing big misconception that there's tons of criminologists running around just waiting to swoop in and steal your data oh hell no right i can't convince people to take on research that needs to be done because there's not enough of us mm. and honestly most of us don't have the institutional knowledge to you know you talk about context we don't know, necessarily know how the data was collected what it's used for right. what the you know i had I, I got a data set from one of the police services that i work very closely with that actually that data set was produced from five different sources that a crime analyst had to piece together for me yeesh. yeah yeesh is right yeah. so when when i asked for an updated version I got two of them that I had to manually start splicing things together. And I thought, you know what? This guy does not get paid nearly enough to do this shit. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. The, what's behind the scenes and even the, the programs that are available aren't enough or up to date. I mean, just the um, epidemic and it's 
pretty sure it's probably global, but I know it's a, a U.S. issue, but the, the heroin and fentanyl, the opioids that have kind of seen an, a massive increase in usage and overdose and overdose deaths with, anybody's uh, CAD and RMS system wasn't built to kind of capture all the, the happenings that were going on. There's a lot of extra information that people wanted to pull forward that they, they just, it wasn't possible to do. So to go into the data and the fact that people don't get paid enough to try and even give you bits of information, what, what usually is probably something that um, people who want to get involved in, in practicing evidence-based policing, what probably is the best policy in terms of police data and getting that up-to-date and clean? Would you walk them through of, what's going to be needed and they're going to have to see what they have and what they're probably going to have to tally on the side or. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, I, I've seen, I have nothing but empathy for, for, for crime analysts. Let me tell you, I have seen what you all have to work with mm -hmm. and it's bad, bad. Um, and it has to do with, uh, and this is one of those areas where, Crime analysts really need to be empowered to have a bigger voice within police organizations about decision-making like this because police leaders, oftentimes the data, like the, the RMS packages, CAD packages, the other software, it's based on issues to do with cost and is the data fit for purpose. And the purpose is not doing complex crime analysis. It's just getting cases through the system. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's why I always love it when people produce things. I'll go back to street checks when they produce things like, uh, you know, breakdowns on race and ethnicity. I'm like, how the hell did y'all get that? Yeah. Because that is one of those fields that's frequently missing from most of the occurrence reports that I look at. Right. Yeah. Missing or completely wrong in some. Form. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, yep. that's a good point, too. Um, <laughs> But but guess what? When the, the system was bought, it wasn't bought to capture. Nobody thought, I'll give you a great example. In Canada, we had two big controversies. One was around street check data. The other one was about uh, unfounded sexual assault cases. Mm. It unfounded didn't mean that they were actually unfounded. It just had to do with how they were coded. Right. Right. Yeah. So it just meant we can't do anything more with this case. Perhaps like the victim doesn't want to go forward or there's no other evidence, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't mean that the victim is not credible, which of course is how it blew up in the media. Mm. Both of those big controversies were generated solely by the crappy ass RMS systems that police services had. Yep. The fact that the crime analysts knew that these were crappy ass systems and the stats were crap, but there was so much pressure to just get something out. Hmm. Nobody actually thought through what it was that was being put out. What it's going to mean. Exactly. Yeah. So one police organization that shall remain nameless. I remember looking at, um, at the published stats and I think they had something like 155,000 street checks in one year. Well, that police service had, I want to say maybe 6,500 members all total, but mm -hmm. you know, not all of them are in op, like frontline op, um, patrol situations. Okay. Not all of them are um, on duty. They might be off sick. They might be seconded, yada, yada. And also, it's, you know, when you look at it, it's not physically possible that they were able to do these numbers. Like, mm. it's just, what did you do? Sit in your car all day and just run, do street checks? Right. 
So you never went to court. You never arrested anybody. Yes. So talk to the crime analysts, and it turns out that the crime analysts in that organization knew that what they were doing was gaming the system by recording things as street checks that weren't actually street checks. <laughs> Right. It's a good practice. Yes. I've yeah. So I ran a license plate, but I need to get my street check count up for this week. So I'll include that as a street check. Oof. So when we talk about the, the data and, and it's 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 very difficult in terms of working with what you guys have. Mm-hmm. And the best that we can do is try to piece together. Oh, there's the cat and the dog fighting in the background. <laughs> Don't hear that. That's a good thing. <laughs> the dog wants to express his her love for the cat, which does not want the love it's right not now. Well, yes. <laughs> Little digress See, in there. Right. So. Well, that's a you know kind of an analogy. All of a sudden, those uh, those police dogs want to show some love to the cat analyst, and sometimes we just don't want to have it. That no, you do not. What you want is you want your clean litter box, your clean food bowl, your clean water bowl, and to be left the hell alone. Our, right? our OCD all in place, yes. Exactly. But thank God you all have OCD because you're the ones that keep the wheels on the bus, right? In terms of, uh, t- in terms of the data analytics side, because like right. I said, you're, you're the ones that know. Now the dogs are fighting. <laughs> and that happens plenty too. <laughs> yes, that that is exactly okay. You little oh. anyway. You, when you did say you wanted it to be lifelike, <laughs> it is. It's like there in person. That's all right. Like Barbara Walters sitting across from you, right? <laughs> there you go. So let me pick up one of the dogs and see if I can stop them from chasing each other. So I forgot where the hell I was going with this. But, you know, you had said about walking, being able to walk crime analysts through to try to come up with ways to deal with what it is that you have to deal with, right? Yeah. So, I mean, we're, you know, we want, I think some of us as well see the the same problems and there's, you can't break out of it. Some of them have, um, as you said, you had uh, an agency, one analyst for 75 um, people at that point in time, which is, you know, probably not terrible, but the demand of, of that is probably not only crime, but strategic and tactical and operational and administrative, um, as well as some intelligence. So you have an analyst now that's overburdened with a variety of different stuff, probably not getting to the context they'd like to with some of the numbers, probably not strategizing enough um, by being capable of leaving the office and going out and seeing what's going on. Um, I remember reading a study of an analyst that had an opportunity to do that. Went out to a Walmart, and they were having a lot of, uh, I guess it was close to a residential area. They had a lot of shoplifting, and people would run off on foot, which means nobody's going to find them, um, even if somebody had a, a great response time because they're gone. And yeah. analysts went out, looked at the environment, and went, well, your bushes are knee high. Like, <laughs> You walk out the front door, that person can go any which way they want to. Um, and so they, you know, put up, a, I think, a waist to chest high fence at that point in time. And there was about a 30 some odd percent reduction in shoplifting by just changing the environment. And it was that quick um, look around that was just knocked off a piece of the shoplifting due to environmental factor. Um but I know that there's a lot of analysts that want to do more than just pump out stats. So for those analysts, what 
do they, what do they do? Who do they reach out to to start some kind of evidence-based policy uh, policing initiative or strategy? And does that start with um, just their local uh, law enforcement, criminal justice college that they might be able to find, pulling in an intern, reaching out to you to, to lay it out? What would be the best way for them to start this path to better practices? So fantastic question. We, um, it, you know, the one, you, the, the one analyst for the 75, I work with another uh, organization that has about 250 sworn officers and, and one crime analyst. Mm-hmm. And I think that person's on a part-time basis. Oof. So you, you can imagine, you can imagine, and I know of organizations that are up to 100 sworn members that don't even have a crime analyst. Right. So I take your point. This is a this is a serious issue, and it's not just the smaller ones. I was at a large a municipal agency that is so overwhelmed with gun violence. Uh, they've had issues with um, terrorism over the past few years, yada yada. That the crime analysts. I think I told the story at IACA. The crime analysts there actually hated me. <laughs> <laughs> because they're like, you're preaching all this empowerment stuff. We're not <laughs> empowered. Mm. And I get that. So when you don't have the ability to, to, to go out and run an experiment or do all these things because you've got other issues that you have to attend to, the good news is that there's actually resources that are available for you. Mm-hmm. One of the big resources that we hook agencies up with is BetaGov, which I had mentioned earlier. It's a free service run through the New York University for law enforcement agencies And then what they do is they provide external support for agencies that want to run more complex experiments or studies or whatever, whatever it is, including, I love this part, they'll give you a professional writer to help you write up your results. See, I think a lot of people (laughs) would be afraid of that. So that's actually good. I know. Nobody likes to do this. Like, it's like traumatic flashback to second year essay writing, right? Yes, Yes. So the good news is you don't have to do that. And the thing I love about BetaGov is they recognize that usually when you guys work with academics, it seems to take us forever to get anything done. Mm -hmm. They work on a much shorter time scale. So we're talking about a few months. Nice. So as long as your project is not insanely, you know, crazy, then I guess insanely and crazy would be the same thing. But you take my point. Um, they get that way though. Yes. (laughs) Yes. They, they get, they become unwieldy, right? So they will help you with keeping it at a level so that you can actually get decent results in a relatively quick time frame. Awesome. And there are tons of examples up on BetaGov's website. Like they did a trial with, um, with Jason Potts at Vallejo on license plate readers They've done a, they're doing a ton of stuff with, um, with us up in Canada, with different police services, including a study on, uh, trying to reduce bicycle thefts, which was pretty hilarious because, uh, one of the foot patrol guys went and took a shot at the bicycle. The bicycle wasn't stolen. Mm -hmm. They just stripped it. (laughs) Just like taking off the wheels and the seat at that point. Yes. Yeah. So the trial not necessarily going so well, right? right. We reduce thefts, but we now strip your bike. But so BetaGov has been involved in a number of initiatives like that. Uh, another thing is, you know, you can always part. Well, first of all, if you're Canadian, you can always reach out to the Canadian society or your other 
society or American, UK and so on, Mm -hmm. and try to hook up with other people. There's tons of different opportunities through social media, through newsletters, through um, forums, just to ask. We run a WhatsApp group quietly for some of our people who just message each other. Like somebody asked a, a question the other day about police custody has anybody done any research on what's effective in police custody? Mm-hmm. And the answer, of course, was no, but not in Canada anyway. So those are all opportunities that are available. Plus, and I and I, and I say this with some caveats around it, you can always reach out to academics. The, te- the tendency is to reach out to local academics and think that you have to work with somebody that's close to you. Right. Nah. In fact, I would argue that you're much better off to work with somebody that is an expert in that area and has a ton of experience working with police organizations than just to pick somebody because they're at the local community college. And that's not dissing local community colleges because lots of universities have crappy people too. Yeah. But um, you you really want to somebody that you can build a long-term, hopefully, research relationship with. And you want somebody that's got the skills that can help you take your game to the next level. We sometimes partner people up that way, but also, you know, it doesn't hurt to do a little fangirling once in a while. (laughs) You'd be surprised how susceptible or not academics are to a little flattery. Yes, that's good. So I read your book, Jerry Ratcliffe. I read your book. I thought it was the best thing. I listened to all your podcasts. Now, Good luck. I don't know if Jerry's going to have the time to come and help you, but I'm telling you, this shit works. So um, get, you know, if you if you see somebody whose work you admire. Butter help, them up. Yeah, hit them up. <laughs> so basically, good to kind of wrap this uh, to, to a close then. Best thing to do is for those analysts that can kind of get themselves out there and, and don't mind probably the extra work to be involved in evidence-based. That way more people can be um, on the same page with kind of the same practices across the board and have proof that it works. Let me give um, you, uh, sorry to interrupt. No, no, you're good. I, I want to make a, a I, I want to just, before we wrap it up, shut up, Lucy. <laughs> I want to just highlight some of the brilliant ingenuity of some of the crime analysts that I see. Absolutely. So um, John Ng from Saskatoon Police Service is working with Rich Johnson at Barry Police Service, and they are actually taking apart myths around thefts from autos and auto theft. Yes, I'm hoping to get John on the show. Fantastic. Ask him about this. <laughs> One of the big things, Canada, freaking cold, pretty much everywhere but Vancouver and Victoria, freaking cold, mm-hmm. like nine months out of the year. So does auto theft increase in winter because stupid people leave their keys in the car and the car turned on to warm it up while they go back in the house. Mm-hmm. Well, we're actually going to test that. It might be the case that thieves are too cold to go and steal the cars in the winter and you're actually at greater risk in the summer, but nobody actually really knows that. Yeah. And so that's just one like little small thing. Um, John's actually working with Chris O'Connor at UOT on a study to do with looking at data quality and what the impacts of poor data quality are in terms of analytics. I can only imagine huge. Oh, 
Big time. And I, I mentioned the I mentioned the um, the Vic PD crime analyst who's going to do run the lock it or lose it experiment. Mm-hmm. Andy Whitford, I think you know. Mm-hmm. Andy Whitford's retiring today, by the way. Congratulations to him then. I know. I'm going to go over and go to his party this afternoon and cry on him and say, "Don't leave me, you bastard." <laughs> That just means he's retiring, but that just means he's more open now to, to get some projects done. Well, he's moving to the States. That's all right. Must you take all our good people? <laughs> I'd say we pay better, but I don't know that for sure because I don't get paid well. So, <laughs> <laughs> Who does? Who does? Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, Andy's leaving and Andy was the brains behind a study that we did on uh, opioid pharmacy robberies. Mm. You know, the big thing, I think I mentioned this at IACA, the big thing is everybody talks about fentanyl and carfentanil and other opioids in relation to the human toll. Yeah. And we get that. I completely 100% get that. But mm-hmm. guess what? That, also, that addiction also generates crime. Yes. And that crime is costing us, and we have no freaking clue how much it's costing us. So Andy, basically, we went to Andy and said, we want to do this. And he masterminded the methodology and collected the data so that we could actually do the study. Oof, that's good. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it involves six different data sets, but don't quote me on that. Wow. But it was fantastic work. So, you know, these are just some of the brilliant people I've been fortunate to work with who, who are crime analysts. So we need more, we need more of you. Yes. Step up. So call to action to all analysts out there who have the uh, the gumption the chutzpah whatever people want to throw out there the the drive to help your fellow analysts and the community at large the whole world of criminology exactly is to reach out to find somebody in academia that will help do evidence-based police research to get your project done, whichever it might be, find that that somebody that specializes. Butter them up. Check out LinkedIn. I'm sure just a quick Google search of academia and whatever uh, car thefts or gun violence, opioid crisis, something along those lines. Somebody else is researching it and needs uh, a crime analyst to, to kind of tap in and get that evidence-based police strategy worked out. Yes, and also if you have any suggestions for how to improve the dog training that goes on in my house, <laughs> then feel I would free to reach out. So, to to actually go upon that, then to build upon that, how can people reach out to you or, or consume some of the information that you put out to the net? Once once you get it settled, there, feel free to. <laughs> well, the dogs just, this is better not be a metaphor because the dogs just chase the cat out of the room. <laughs> oh, see? Well, they're angry that now they're working with somebody else at this point. That's, well, there you go. So, but um, first of all, we have, uh, uh, I'll do a plug for CANSA, the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing. We are free. And that's because, as I always like to say, Canadians are communists and we believe that education and all good things in life should be free. Good, strong social government. That's all right. 
Exactly. And so there's tons of resources on our website and in the newsletter that you, it can help. Like we do profiles of academics. We talk about different books that are coming out, different pieces of research, different projects so that you can get a flavor of what's actually going on mm-hmm. in your community. Because guess what? Criminology is your community. Right. And then the other um, thing I would suggest is if you're not already, get active on social media. A Twitter, which is, by the way, for geriatric 50-year-olds, because I guess everybody over 40 is a geriatric now. (laughs) I say this as a bitter 52-year-old whose jokes do not resonate with my 20-year-old students anymore. Um, So what I would say is get on social media. There's a lot of resources, particularly on Twitter. And all the people that you, whose work you're interested in and people you don't even know whose work you could be interested in tend to be on Twitter and very accessible and very generous in terms of sharing their material and their information. Awesome. So I will post a question on Twitter like some dumbass and be like, uh, does anybody know anything about this topic? And get really good responses back from all across the globe. Yes. Well, that's good. Yeah, that definitely drum up uh some answers across social media. It's a great networking tool um, in a few few areas. So if people wanted to follow you on Twitter, what is your handle there? So I'm at, at can, C-A-N underscore S-E-B-P. Mm-hmm. And I'm also at Laura Huey, L-A-U-R-A-H-U-E-Y, U-W-O for Western. So my personal one tends to have more science-based stuff. So lately I've been telling people there's no evidence to suggest that suntanning your butthole will actually increase your energy level. <laughs> Good to know, right? Absolutely. This is a new thing. This isn't you can blame Gwyneth Paltrow for this crap. So but yes, if you will go out hiking and see people with their legs in the air run, um so I that tends to be more, you know, pro science. Cancep tends to be much more focused on policing and policing research. So you can follow me on both. And like I said, get, you know, www.can-sebp.net. Tons and tons of free stuff. And we're actually looking at generating more free stuff. And if you've got suggestions, you can always message me. If there's a product that you think we need to, we need to do, I want to hear about it. Awesome. We will send everybody that way. Yay! <laughs> well, Dr. Laura Huey, I thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, you enjoy the, your day. Thank you so much. I really enjoy myself. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Neuro Knowledge Podcast. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. And share it with all your friends. And we will catch you next time. <laughs>